Amen. Amen. If you've got your tissues, and I hope you do, uh, clean yourself up. And then grab your Bible and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time today. Um, we are in the fifth and final week of Act Like Men. And speaking of incredible races, we have a run that, that's coming up on November the 19th is the McKenzie Run. And so that's kind of like an 1122 thing too. We are in great partnership with the McKenzie Wilson Foundation. I'd highly encourage you to be there. If you're a runner, it starts and ends on the 50 yard line of Everbank Field, that's great. Um, and, and we should, whether you're a runner or not, you should be there, okay? Because uh, I will assure you, I am not a runner. If you ever see me running, Call the police. Something's going horribly wrong, okay? So I'm not a runner. But nobody knows if you're actually running or not. You can just show up like in running clothes without the sweat and get all the credit. So show up. Be a part of that. It's something that, that, that we are a part of. So please be there on November 19th. Um, <clears throat> this is the fifth and final week. I know we had a sixth week plan just for you girls. It's not good for man to be alone, what we needed from you. And then the hurricane kind of wiped us out. And so it's going to be five weeks. But all we're doing is putting a delay on that so you're not off. Uh, next spring, I'll be doing a verse by verse through the book of Ruth. And that'll be a six-week series. And so we're going to add the sermon that was going to be in this series uh, next spring. So you get a reprieve for a little while. Now, our theme verse has been 1 Corinthians 16, 13 to 14. The, the, the center of it has been that statement, act like men. And then the imperatives around it are how we are to act like men. And I've got to tell you, I've had a blast preaching this sermon up until today. I mean, I really have. Uh, I think, I think the reason why is because I have a lot of confidence in being a man, being a godly man, being the kind of man God has called me to be. I mean, we, first week was act like men. I'm a man. I am. I'm not a boy that can shave. I take on responsibility. I know who God is. I know who I am. Felt pretty good about that one. Be watchful. Like stand on the wall to defend my family and the people and our church and those things. And I understand the schemes of the enemy and what he's going to throw at me. And so I'm going to watch out for those things that he is trying to throw at me and stand firm in the faith. I know what it is to put on the full armor of God and stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. Be strong. I am strong. I'm not talking about physically strong. Used to be, not so much anymore, 43, so that's, that's going downhill. But I know what it means to be strong in the Lord, feeling super good about it. And then even when I read verse 14, let all you do be done in love. Well, at first I thought, man, I'm probably smoking this one too. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but by the, by the grace of God, you know, he's, 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 he's sanctifying me. And then I get to that and I think, man, I'm probably doing okay here. Cause I love, I got love in here. I have these feelings towards my church, my family, you know, those kind of things. But then when you get down to what the Bible says love is, you know what? I get a big old, uh oh, or an oh no, that's what I get. Cause I get a big fat F on this one. I mean, a, a failing grade on this one. My guess is, men, you do too. So buckle up for the butt whooping that you're about to receive, okay? But I'm just letting you know, I'm in this one with you. 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. It is. Even if you're new to Bible study, you've heard this one if you've ever been to a wedding. I read this every Saturday of my life, I feel like. But I've never really read it in the context of act like men, and I've also never... Uh, I always kind of thought while Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was writing to the church of Corinth, verse chapter 12, and before that, he's talking about church leadership and how you do communion and, and how you have orderly worship services and how you deal with the gifts of the Spirit, and then chapter 14 about unity in a church, and then it was almost like chapter 13 was just kind of stuck in there because we had to have something for weddings, 
But that, that's not what it is. You can't just pull 13 out by itself. You see, love happens in the context of relationships. It happens in the context of relationships. And while the Corinthian church was a very gifted church, they had all the spiritual gifts, they were not a very loving church. That they were getting drunk at communion. You get drunk at communion, you need to go to meetings. You have issues. And so that's what happens here. And so in chapter 13, it kind of, bre- it, 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 it kind of breaks up into three different parts structurally. Verses one through three talk about the necessity and primacy of love, how important it is. Verses four through seven describes and applies love. And then verses eight through 13 speak of the permanence of love. And in the permanence of love is this challenge to men. So let's pick it up. First Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse one. Paul says to the church in Corinth, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, again, this is in the context of church leadership. So in other words, he's saying, if you hear the best sermons you've ever heard in your life, nothing, no amen, no, no, okay, that's fine. (laughs) See what we're working with. I mean, if you just, if you preach the pain off the walls that have not love, then you're a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That described pagan worship in some of the pagan temples in Corinth. That's how they would worship. And so what, what God wants us to know is, is that if your worship services are the jam, but you do them without love, you might as well just be worshiping a pagan God. Verse two, and if I have prophetic powers and understanding of all mysteries and knowledge, can you imagine having that? Prophetic powers, not just the gift of prophecy, but what if you could rightly see today's situation and perfectly predict where that situation takes you going on in the future? Every single time you had that power and you knew all mysteries. I mean, every single one of them. You know who shot JFK? You know who they get those, those boats in the little bottles? Whatever question anybody came to you and said, how do they? And you're like, I know this. And if you had all knowledge, Like you're just crushing jeopardy, daily double every time without even thinking hard. He says, if you have all, if you have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if you have all faith so as to remove mountains, if you had the the power of miracles that every time you prayed, it, it, it was answered exactly the way you prayed it. Like when you shared your faith, you didn't just talk about the, the theology of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. You were like, watch this, and you would, pick up a building with your mind. Okay, if you had that kind of power, but you had not love, it says, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, so remember last year, the Before All Things Generosity Initiative, and we said what God is calling us to do, we think we're gonna need $24 million to accomplish what God is calling us to do. And if you would've stood up in the service and said, I'm gonna sell everything I have, and I'm gonna cover that. Well, we would say, God bless your ministry. And he's gonna say, if you did that without love, it means nothing. Now, we would still receive your check because that's between you and Jesus. But uh, I'm just saying, if you sponsored every single Compassion Kid, not just that we offer up, but in the whole world, and if if you deliver up your body to be burned but have not love, you gain nothing. Listen to this, men. I am nothing and I gain nothing. Even if you crushing it everywhere else, we would call that failure. You see, the fundamental question in the heart of every single man is this, do I have what it takes? And so Paul is telling us here, if you accomplish everything in this world, but you do it in a loveless way without love, then you do not have what it takes. 
that you gain nothing and you are nothing. This means if you get the biggest house and you land the dream job and you outperform all the competition and you shoot one under and you buy the sweetest boat and you impress the most people and your YouTube video goes viral and you pastor the fastest growing church in America and you do that without love, you are a complete failure according to what God says is important. And you might say, well, well, why would you say that? Because a lawyer comes up to Jesus to kind of trick him in the New Testament and says, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? In the whole Bible, what's the most important commandment? There were over 600 to choose from. He goes, that's easy. Love God and love people. That love was the answer. So if you don't get that, then you've missed out on the most important thing. Now, the problem is the kind of love that Jesus was talking about, the kind of love that we find in 1 Corinthians 13 is a Greek word called agape love. Agape love is a sacrificial love. When we hear the word love, we most often think of the, the word from Greek means eros. It's a taking kind of love. It's, a, it's like a romantic kind of love. Because, because when you just first see this, let all that you do be done in love, we think about we think about feelings and passion, and we think, man, I love, I have so much love going on in here. But the reality is in our world that if you are the hottest couple, the richest couple, the most famous couple with a ton of passion, and you do not have love, you fail. Don't believe me? Check out exhibit A. Fail. <laughs> fail. Because they don't have love. They got money, they got wealth, they got, they've even got good intentions. I mean, they've started their own little compassion thing in their house, right? Their dinner table looks like the UN. They're just getting people from everywhere, bringing them all together. But you build that thing on something other than the love of God and it will not make it. And listen, they have passion and they have good looks. Look at those beautiful people. And it will not sustain you. It will not sustain you. You build your relationships on what you look like. I got bad news. Time and gravity are not your friend. All right, it ain't getting any better than it is today. All right, I'm telling you, I'm 43. I experienced this at an exponential rate. And again, you can tuck it up and tie it up and stretch it out for a little while and it buy you some time. But eventually, you look like a trash bag full of water. That's just what you look like, okay? And so, that's fine. And you know what happens right now? Brad wakes up in the morning, looks at Angelina and goes, nah. Nah. That's crazy, isn't it? You know what Angelina wants? She wants what Gretchen Martin has. That's a fact, all right? Now, <clears throat> not in regards to what it looks like. If you're into like pretty and hair and chiseled and all of that, that's fine. I mean, if you're, if you're like kind of into the chubby committed type, I'm your man, all right? But you know what, never, ever, ever, and you know what, she does not have to worry about because the love of God that her husband never wakes up one day and goes, nah never ever happens you see but you can have all the things that this world offers I don't know why y'all laughed at that part y'all hurt my feelings man <laughs> so my definition of love is this my definition of love is love is <clears throat> your joy in the Lord expressed toward others at great expense to yourself that's what love is love is your joy in the Lord expressed toward others, that love does not happen in a vacuum, at great expense to, towards, I mean, a great expense to yourself. And you say, where do you get a definition like that? It's of Jesus Christ on the cross. His joy in the Lord expressed toward us at great expense to himself. And at any moment on the cross, he could have said, that's enough, stop it. 
and a legion of angels come down and just shut the whole thing down. So he had to, every moment that he experienced that suffering, redecide and rechoose to love us by pouring himself out on the cross. You see, that's different than a feeling. Because you know what most of us mean, me included? Most of us, when we say, I love you, what we actually mean is, I love me. I love me. And, I, and you help me love me better. That's why I love you. But really, that means I love me. Here's what I mean. Because you tell me nice things. And you do nice things for me. And you help me be a better version of me. Therefore, most of the time when we say I love you, what we really mean is I love me. So why don't you hang around so we can help me love me just a little bit better. So let's see how we're doing. Okay. Is it important? It's the most important thing. So now let's, let's see how we're doing. Verse four. What we're gonna get here is a description and an application of what love is. Not what you think it is and not what we feel like love is, but what it is. Now, I gotta let you know, this is where I get the F, total and complete F. And that is not like a sermon trick, so you feel better about you. This is just me having the Bible read me. As I was trying to read it, it started reading me. Verse four, love is patient and kind. All right, I'm 0 for 2. I mean, straight up, 0 for 2. Have you ever used those words to describe me? Have you ever had people say, where are you going to church? Go 1122. Tell me about your pastor. Oh, just patient and kind and just gentle and loving. That's, that's what comes to mind. No, you haven't. And there you go, laughing at me again, hurt my feelings. I'm telling you, I am impatient. I am, I am impatient. I get on the road. I feel like everybody in front of me is beating me. And so I have to get around them. That's what I feel like. And Gretchen's like, why you got to pass them? Because they're in front of me. I don't worry about them when they're behind me. That's how, that's what I feel like. I, uh, you know, JP comes to church early with me on Sunday mornings and he's got baseball practice today from 12 to two. So he's got to bring all of his baseball stuff and he's a catcher. So you got twice as much stuff. And so I wake him up and say, look, I'm gonna go get ready. I'm gonna go to the shower and stuff. When I get back, have all your stuff ready. Okay, son. Okay, dad. And, and he, I come out and he's sitting down watching the iPad. You got all your stuff together, buddy? Uh-huh. All of it. All of it. Yeah. Cleats. Nope. Hat. Nope. Jock strap. Nope. That's not all of it. Let me tell you what did not ooze out. Patience. Oh, son. Because God has been patient with me. I'm going to be patient with you. No. And I'm preaching about it today. Patience is the passive reaction of love to tough circumstances and people. Literally in Greek, the word here for patience means to take a punch. And I think I can take a punch, but that's usually the setup for me to punch back. There's no counterpunch here. And patience and kindness go together. That kindness is the active action towards those people that are requiring your patience. Love is patient and kind. Straight up, I am 0 for 2. So we'll keep going. Love does not envy or boast. There's the one I'm okay on, not the boast one. I do boast all the time. But the envy, I don't envy. I, I, I'm, I am so okay with who God has created me to be. I feel like the most blessed man in the world. Woohoo! I get about a 10% here. If your kid brings a 10 home on a test, they don't do good, do they? Uh-uh, it's a big old F. So <clears throat> love, the Bible says, in NIV it says love is not jealous. Here's the thing. It also says that God is love and that God is a jealous God. So you're like, what does that mean? Here's the thing. That love is jealous, but not jealous of. Love is jealous for. There's a big difference there. So God is jealous, but he is jealous for you. He is not jealous of you. To be jealous of you would be silly. Do you think God looked at you, get ready to, for church today and be like, those are some sweet pants. I wish I had pants like that. Gosh, I wish I had pants like that. 
right? No. What do you possibly have that God would look at and want? You think he looks at your house and be like, look at those granite countertops. We've had these things forever. I wish I had. No, he created the granite. If he wanted anything that we had, he could just make it. But he is jealous for you, which means he wants the best for you. And so he knows that if you choose to worship anything or any other God other than him, that would be the worst thing for you. So he is jealous for you. That's why we should only worship him. That, that, that love is not envious. That means that you don't look at the people that you say that you love and wish that you had what they had. You are glad that God has given them what God has given them. And, and love does not boast because both of these, envy and boasting, both of them say, yeah, 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 enough about you. Let's get back to me. And love always says, it's not about me. So love is not patient. I mean, love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Here we go again. Do you, are you arrogant and rude? Because arrogance thinks that you're actually better than everybody else. And rudeness treats them that way. When you walk in the room, when you walk in the house, do you think everybody in your family's existence, that God put them on this earth to serve you so that you could accomplish all the great things that you were out to accomplish? That's what it means to be arrogant. Do you really think God surrounded you with everybody to be the support cast in the epic adventure of you? That's what, I'm guilty of this, man. I am so guilty of this. When you walk in the door, here's how you know, when you walk in the door, does peace walk in with you? Like, do you come in to serve? Do you come in to be served? Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Do you have to have your own way? I do. I do. There's a little bit of, there's a few things that I don't care about. And the things I don't care about, I don't have to have my way. But I don't care about them because I don't care about them. Does that make sense? Which is still my way. Do you always have to have the last word? Gretchen asks me this all the time. She goes, when we're having like moments of intense fellowship, right? <laughs> she says, why do you always have to be right? And I think, who wants to be wrong? Why don't you just cross on over to my side and we'll both be right together and then it'll all be awesome. Doesn't go awesome, okay? Do you always have to be right? And I'm so bad, I've got a Bible verse with my rightness. Do you always have to be right? You insist in your own way, because love doesn't do that. Love is not irritable or resentful. The, the NIV translates that word irritable as easily angered. Are you is easily angered? You see, because if something is irritable, just think physically. Like, like if, you've got, if you've got a rash, if you've got a cut, if you've got something that's healing, like on your elbow or arm, that if you bump into the healthy arm, no problem. Just the slightest little bump into the place where the wound is healing, it irritates it, right? And it does not take much to set it off. That's what irritable is. Like you ever burn your finger or cut your finger? And you never noticed that apparently you walk through your whole day just jamming your finger into stuff, but you didn't know, right? But when it's cut or when it's burned, you're just walking around the house just slamming it into stuff. Like, <laughs> that's what it means to be irritable. That there's some kind of wound going on in there that has never been dealt with, that, that, that you don't really believe that Jesus paid for it all. And so it's right on the surface and anybody can just do the slightest little thing and you are irritated, you're easily angered. When, when you walk in the door, does peace walk in with you? Or do, do your employees or do your family members think, uh-oh, he's home, what do we get today? What do we, here he is, hope he's in a good mood. 
One of the things you're gonna find here in 1 Corinthians 13 is an absence of excuses to not be loving. Because you know what we do, man? We, do, we, we all do this. We, we try to, just like Adam, it's not my fault. I'm tired, I'm stressed. That's why I'm irritable. No, it's because we're not loving. That's why. And then you do that long enough. See, irritable is like in that moment. You do that long enough and then you become resentful. And resentful is harboring unforgiveness with this low-grade disappointment because you didn't get what you wanted and you do that long enough, it's just the air you breathe. You just wake up and your face looks like you were, you were weaned on a pickle. And you're like, what are you mad at? I don't know, but I'm just, this is what I do. You're irritable and resentful. Listen, man, I dare you. I dare you to ask the people that work for you. I dare you to ask your family this question. What is it like to be on the other side of me? Now, the reality is, is if you're irritable and resentful, they probably won't tell you the truth. They're telling somebody what it's like to be on the other side of you. You wanna create the kind of environment where they can tell you. And when they tell you, listen, you ask your wife, and I hope she has the, the uh, she has the guts, I promise. I hope she tells you the truth, and your response is, that's it, got it? Shall we practice? <laughs> Are you easily angered? Are you resentful? Verse six, <clears throat> love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. The NIV translates it, love keeps no record of wrong. Men, are you keeping score? Do you have a scorecard on everybody? Are you counting the last time she was sweet to you? When, when she said, see, the difference here is what, what the Bible commands us to do in Matthew chapter 18, if when somebody sins against you, you don't talk to them, you don't talk about them, you talk to them, and you take that sin to them for their benefit so that they can be reconciled unto the Lord. So that as you remove the plank from your own eye, you can remove the speck of sawdust from theirs. That's what Matthew 18 says to do when we're sinned against. But, but what this says is that love keeps no record of wrong. You know what a lot of us do? When we are wronged and sometimes we're wrong, we just jot that down in this ledger back here because we got a scorecard on everybody. And what we're basically doing is building a case so that when we're confronted by our bad behavior, we can put the bad behavior right up in front of the person that has done us wrong and say, see, I'm not the only one. And that's great, that's great if you're a lawyer. It's not great if you love, because love does not do that. You see, love forgives. I don't know about you, some people when they fight, they get hysterical, I get historical. I can remember everything that I want to, it's crazy. And again, those intense fellowship, like I remember back in 2001, it was a Thursday night, and you said this, and the Bible says, don't do that. The word there in Greek is logizomai, logizomai, from the root word logos, which is word. In other words, love doesn't even talk about those times where it's been done wrong. It doesn't give those things, those events, any power. There's a whole bunch of relationships that are handcuffed in the future because they're stuck in the past and what happened. Love doesn't do that. But love rejoices in the truth. Men, do you rejoice in the truth? Do you spend more time pointing out the negatives in everybody's life or praising the positives in everybody's life? I mean, track the, here's an easy thing. Scroll through the last week of texts to your wife, to your employees, to your children, and you can just count them. Was that negative on what they could do better or was that positive praising what, they, what God has done in them? You see, that's what love does. Love bears all things. 
Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. You see, what we're going to find out here is part of the reason that we feel like we love well, even if we're not loving well, is because the opposite of love in 1 Corinthians 13 is not hate. The opposite of love is selfishness. It's when we make it all about us. But love says, it's not about me. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. In other words, love never quits. Love never, ever quits. So you know what this means, men, if you want to be a man, that you never, ever, ever give up. You never give up. No matter the cost, no matter the circumstances, you never give up. Let me get real practical in 2016. This means that you never give up pursuing the heart of your wife. You never give up pursuing her. Even if you think right now you are on the brink of divorce, you may be, and it's probably your fault. But from this day forward, you do not give up and you don't let your past define you and you never give up fighting for the heart of your wife. You fight and fight and fight. Even if she's already left you and even if she's already filed papers, those papers do not tell you who you are. Jesus tells you who you are. Some court decision does not define your marriage. God defines your marriage. And I know some of you are thinking, gosh, I'm in an impossible situation. If the tomb is any, if the tomb is empty, then anything is possible. It's just true. It's just true. So don't give up. Also, men, do not give up fighting for the hearts of your children. Don't give up fighting for the hearts of your children. And I know there at times, especially when they're teenagers, that you just want to give up fighting because they have a plan. They have a plan to just wear you down. That's what they're Snapchatting about all the time. All right, if you keep asking, they'll just quit. So don't stop fighting. What they wear matters. Where they go matters. Who they're with matters. Don't, I don't, it doesn't matter if they like you, all right? If they like you too much when they're teenagers, something is probably wrong, okay? They don't make great decisions. They're right here. Love y'all. Glad you're here. It's all right. You'll grow out of it. All right, it's just true. <laughs> you just fight and fight and fight and fight. And if you're divorced, if you're divorced, and I know a lot of people in here are divorced, and you're in a custody battle, your battle is not against flesh and blood. Your battle is not against your ex. Both parents have to fight for their children. Regardless of how much you get to see them or not see them or whatever, when they become adults and they're looking back on their life, the thing that they must know is my daddy never quit fighting for me. He never quit, he never gave up, he never tapped out. If he had to drive forever and fly forever or move his house or whatever it took, my dad never ever quit fighting for me. And you think, well, how in the world can I do that? Because love bears all things. Love bears all things and love believes all things and love hopes all things and love endures all things. And if the tomb is empty, then anything is possible because love is alive, because love is found in Jesus Christ. Now, now let me just ask you, be honest, how you doing? Anybody wanna raise their hand and be like, nailing it, just crushing it. Wish Paul would've thrown a couple others in because this is kindergarten stuff and I, this isn't even hard. Anybody there? All right, good, because love doesn't boast if you raise your hand and you're a hypocrite, all right, so. I'm telling you, this is, I'm ruined by it. Ruined by it. Called Gretchen on the way home from the woods on Monday and said, babe, I owe you an apology. She's like, what's wrong? I was like, you know I love you, but I have not been loving you. You know I love our children, but I have not been loving our children. She's like, okay, we'll talk about it when we get home. I got home and she's like, what do you mean? And honestly, she was so encouraging. She could tell I was like really ruffled. And she, she was encouraged. She's like, no, baby, you love us. We're so blessed. You love our kids. You love me. I mean, I, I love you. And I go, okay, well, let's just look through the list here and, and you tell me how am I doing? Love is patient and kind. And she went, okay. 
She wasn't trying to be mean. Literally, she's just being honest. She goes, what else does it say? <laughs> we get through the end of the list. She's like, babe, I'll be praying for you. Just be praying for you. Do you see the difference? I, ha- like, I have these feelings in my heart, but I don't, I don't think I've been patient or kind and I boast and I'm arrogant and I'm rude and I always have to have my own way and I'm irritable and resentful and I got a long record of wrongs done against me and all of these things. You see, and then he keeps going. Verse eight, love never ends. This is about the, the, the eternity of love. Love never ends. The reason love never ends is because God is love and God never ends. Love never ends. It is eternal. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For now we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, like when we go to heaven, the partial will pass away. Now these things are important. Prophecy is important. Speaking is important. Knowledge is important. But none of that is gonna be in heaven. Do you know this? There'll be no tongues in heaven. Here's what this means. I mean, there's a couple of things that that means. Um, uh, in, the, in the first century and today, God will give somebody a, a, a supernatural word for the blessing and the edification of his church through an interpretation. You won't need that in heaven because you're just like right there with the Father. You could be, what'd you say again? He'd just tell you. And, and in, in the book of Romans, there's like a prayer language. Like you, you're praying with a groaning of the spirit. Well, when you're in heaven, that's not how your prayers work. What are you gonna ask of God? You're a co-heir with Christ. Everything he has is yours. You're walking in it. And you can just ask him. It's like going on vacation with your dad. There you are. You just talk to him. And there's no prophecy in heaven. That doesn't just mean telling the future. When the Bible talks about prophecy, it just talks about telling the truth from the scriptures. There are no more sermons in heaven. This whole thing that I do for a living is going away. Because think about this, we're not gonna be gathered together in eternity in a perfect relationship with God, with Jesus Christ sitting on the throne of glory with the elders around him, bowing down, singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come and laying down their crowns at the feet. And then you hear on the PA system, uh, attention heaven, Pastor Joby will be doing a series on Ephesians in room 301 starting at two o'clock. It's not happening. We all gather in and be like, okay, um, if you've got your Bible, go to Ephesians. I, Paul, Hey, Paul, good to see you. Uh, to you, Ephesians. What's up, guys? Welcome. Glad you're here. No, those days are over. But the thing that will remain is love. Because love never ends because God never ends. And then right in here in the eternality of love, we get this command, men, this challenge, men. I've never seen it this way before. And I read my Bible a lot. It says this. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. And I thought like a child. And I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. What are childish ways? What he's talking about are the things that love is not. That's what he's saying. Like when I was a little baby, I, was, I wasn't very patient and kind. And when I was a baby, I was jealous of what everybody else had and I bragged about everything I had. And when I was a baby, I was arrogant and rude. I thought the whole world revolved around me. And when I was a baby, I had to have my own way and I was irritable and resentful. I mean, think about it. Is anybody more selfish than a child? And I know you think your little snowflake is precious, but be honest for a second. They're a selfish little snowflake, are they not? I mean, have you ever met a child that was patient? 
Like they ask you for something and you had something else to do and they went, okay, father and mother, you've had a hard day. Why don't you take a break and I'll just wait. If they do that, get your life right. It is a sign of the end of times. Jesus will be back by the afternoon, okay? <laughs> just ain't happening. And are they rude? They're rude about everything. Are they arrogant? They think the whole world revolves around them. Are, do they insist their own, on their own way? Yes, and if they don't get it, they pitch a fit. You don't believe me? Just hang out at Publix this afternoon and just go through the cereal aisle. Let one kid not get the kind of cereal they want and they lay on the floor and they throw a fit. Are they irritable? <laughs> Miss one meal, one nap. I wish I had a nap. One meal, one nap, take their favorite toy from them and what do they do? They act like a baby. And Paul said, yeah, I did too when I was a baby. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. You know what this means, men? When we're loud and obnoxious and we've got to have our own way and we flex our strength and our authority and our manhood to make it about us and when we envy and when we boast and when we're unkind and when we're not patient and when we step in there and say, this is how it's going to be. Listen, I'm telling you, I, do, I did it this week. Called up the gas company because Gretchen called them three times and they wouldn't call her back. I said, you give me the number called him up in my truck. Hey, you listen to me. If you don't call me back today, you can come get your tank. I'm going to have it sitting out on the road. How am I going to get a 50-gallon tank of propane out there, right? Blow up the whole neighborhood, we'd be in the news. It's not even possible. And I was thinking, I'm the man. You know what? When we, when we try to act tough like that, we're not being tough. We're being a toddler. You want to be a man? You'd be loving. I think that's what he's saying. It is very, very convicting because children are not patient. They're jealous. They're rude. And when they don't get their way, they pitch a fit. And men, when we don't get our way, if we pitch a fit, we're not being tough. We're being like babies. And Paul says, act like men. You see, James 4.1 says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? In other words, why are you pitching a fit? And here, we wanna give our list of excuses, don't we? And James is very practical. You know why James is very practical? Because James is the brother of Jesus. He's not gonna tell a lot of stories. He heard them all his whole life. Jesus walking around in high school talking about, there were 12 sheep. And he's like, yeah, whatever, all right? I mean, you want some evidence for the reality of Jesus being the son of God? Anybody got a brother? What would it take for your brother to convince you that he was God? Think about that for a second. I got a brother. If he came in, was like, behold, <laughs> I am the Lamb of God. <laughs> you something, hoss, but you ain't that, all right? <laughs> and yet James, when his brother, he was not convinced at the miracles. He was not convinced at the teachings. He was not convinced of the feeding of the 5,000, the parables, any of that. What he was convinced of is when Jesus came back out of the grave, he went, he is who he says he is. And he surrenders his life to the lordship of his brother. So in James chapter four, he writes a book. James chapter four, he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? In other words, why are you so irritable? Why are you pitching a fit? And then he answers his own question because you want something and you don't get it. And you think, yeah, 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 but I've got this excuse. He's like, hey, you call it whatever you want to, but when you pitch a fit because you don't get what you want and you try to flex on it, you are not being tough. You are being a toddler, you being a child. So to stand up and to act like a man is to put these childish ways behind you and to be patient and kind and not envious and not boasting and all these things. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror. This is gonna talk about the, the eternality of love, how important it is. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, talking about heaven or eternity. 
Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, these three are really big deals. Faith is a really big deal. Faith is the currency by which we know God. The Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith and trust and belief are all the same word. The way that we have a relationship with God is putting our faith in Jesus Christ. That we are saved by grace through faith. It is the vehicle by which God's grace is poured out on us. That, that God saw the faith of Abraham and credited it to him as righteousness. Faith is a really big deal. And there is no faith in heaven. Nobody's gonna come up to you in heaven and be like, do you believe in Jesus? He's sitting right there, ask him, all right? There's no faith, there's just the reality that is. And hope, hope on earth right now is a really big deal, really big deal. The Bible says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. I'd rather have a sick body than a sick heart. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And in that same book of Proverbs, it says, it says that above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. So that's really important to have hope in your heart. You lose hope in your heart and you'll feel helpless. And the whole world will go dark on you. So is hope important? It sure is, but there's no hope in heaven because the things that we are hoping for, we are experiencing firsthand every day. But you know what does remain? Love remains because love is eternal. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love. It matters for eternity. You see, on our own, we are in really, really big trouble. Remember, my definition is this. Love is your joy in the Lord expressed toward others at great expense to yourself. So how are you doing, men? Are you loving? Now, if at this moment you don't think, I should be more loving, then I'm not doing a very good job as the preacher telling you what the Bible says about love. But the good news is, if you just go out and try harder, that won't work. You see, if I were to tell you to give somebody something that you did not have, you would first have to go obtain that thing in order to give it away. So if I said, hey, tomorrow at Hope's Closet, we got an eight-track drive. We need all your eight-tracks. Okay, if you're my age and up, no problem. You can go to the trunk somewhere and pull one out. There it is, Johnny Cash, all right? I mean, if you're, some of you'd have to Google what an eight-track is, but then you would have to go to Amazon and get the eight-track so that you could go then give the eight-track. So the reality is, if you're feeling like, I need to be more loving, the reality is that what you really need is more Jesus because he is the source of love. I'm gonna run through a bunch of verses to help explain this. First John 4, verses seven and eight, starts out this way, beloved. Beloved is the title that God has given us. This is a really big deal, beloved. It just means like to be loved, that's what it is. And it's even bigger than that. Do you know what God's name in the Old Testament was? God's name was Yahweh, the tetragram. It's just four consonants. Hebrew doesn't have vowels. It was supposed to sound like breathing, Yahweh. That's what it's supposed to sound like, Yahweh. It literally translates, I am that I am. Even a better translation is, I be what I be. I like that one better. That, that God's name given to Moses at the burning bush. Exodus chapter three, he sees this burning bush. And you know, a fire, a fire is like, it's both inviting and terrifying at the same time. Like every campfire that you've ever been to, right? You, you, you get it ablaze and then you just are drawn to it and you just stare at it. But if you get too, too close, you gotta go to the ER, right? So it's, it's inviting and terrifying, kind of like God. 
And he says, I am that I am, that's my name. I be who I be, Yahweh. His name is to be. It's just eternally present. And then he calls us be loved. See how that works? That you are loved by God. That he is a good, good father. That's just who he is. And you are loved by him. That's just who you are. And when you and I begin to understand that we are loved by God, then we can go and love one another. He says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Even if you know your Bible super good and you don't know love, then you don't know God because he is love. Even if when I said, all right, turn to 1 Corinthians 13, you're like, love chapter. If you knew that, if you go on a million mission trips, if you, if you know the words to the song and you worship with your eyes closed and one hand up, like the Pledge of Allegiance, all right? Even if you do all those kind of things, that does not mean that you know God if you don't know love. Why? Because God is love. That God in and of himself is a perfect love relationship. The triune God, that theology matters a bunch. There's one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in a perfect submissive love relationship. God's love for God's self spilled out into creation. God wasn't like walking around heaven going, what are we gonna do with all this space and time? We need some people that'll sing us songs on the weekend. That is not how it worked. But God's love for himself spills out and he creates humankind in his image and likeness. And that's why we are the only creatures created things that have the ability to love because we are the only ones created in his image and likeness. Which means this, your dog does not love you. I know you love your dog, but your dog does not love you back. Your dog loves bacon. And if you died in your apartment tonight, he would eat your neck meat to stay alive. That's just true. <laughs> Think about that next time you feed him. And your cat doesn't love you. Your cat doesn't even like you, okay? They don't like anybody. That's why we don't like them. And then we love because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. And the reason that we can love is because God is love. And when his love is in us, we can be a conduit of the love of God, that his love fills us up and overflows towards each other, that we don't have love in and of ourselves. I know we have emotion and passion for sure, but that kind of sacrificial love in and of ourselves, the reason we can love is because he first loved us. And then Jesus says in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And he says, I call you friends. That he laid him his life down for us. And that is how we are supposed to love one another at great expense to ourselves. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, God is first and God loved first and God went first. That God does not wait until I get a passing grade on the love test in 1 Corinthians 13 before he loves me even though he knows that I have feelings for my people and my church in my heart, even though I fail you daily, God says, I'm not gonna fail you, I'm gonna go first. I'm gonna demonstrate my love for you in this. That before you do anything loving towards anybody, I'm gonna send my son to die for you. First John 4, 10, in this is love. Anytime the Bible's gonna define something like this, you wanna pay close attention. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin. A propitiation for our sin. Propitiation, we teach it all the time, means a, a payment that satisfies. That when Christ died on the cross, he, he satisfied the law and the justice of God. So not only are our sins forgiven, but we also get credit for the righteous, perfect life that he lives. 
It would be like if you got on your smartphone right now and checked your bank account and you were like, oh no, I am $3 trillion in debt. I know you can't imagine such a debt, but just try, okay? $3 trillion in debt. I don't have enough life left in me to ever pay that off. And then God comes into your little personal budget meeting here and says, tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. I'll take your debt and I'll give you my bank account. Wanna make that deal? Uh-huh. And then you get on and you check your bank account and it's got tens and tens and tens and thousands of trillions of dollars that God gives you, not a credit card. He's not really into credit cards. He gives you his debit card and you don't just have your debt paid for, but you also have access to everything that he has. And he goes, you want to make that trade? C.S. Lewis calls it great exchange. Yeah. What do I do? Nothing. It has been done. It is finished. When Christ died on the cross, He was the propitiation for your sin. Not only did he pay your debt, but we were accredited with his righteousness. And when you do that, if you say, okay, I'm in. I believe that when Christ died on the cross, that that counted for me. Jesus is not just our model for us to follow. He's not just a good teacher for us to mimic, but the spirit of God dwells inside the heart of every believer that understands that Jesus is their Lord. And then what begins to happen is the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of you, but the fruit of the Spirit begins to work its way to the outside and you begin to bear the fruit of the Spirit. You begin to do Jesus stuff. For some of you, this has begun to happen in your life. You got saved at 1122, you've been a Christian for like six months and and the the last one, the one that bats clean up or or last on fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And some of you, some of you in the last three weeks, you've stumped your toe and you were like, oh no. Who was that? Did y'all just hear that? I didn't say a bad word. Some of that has happened in you and that is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in you. You say these loving things to people when normally you would spew hate. Do you know, you know, who, bats, you know who bats lead off in the fruit of the Spirit? Love. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so when I came to Gretchen and said, baby, I am failing It was conviction and not condemnation because condemnation says um, that is unfit for use. Condemnation, if you condemn a building, you don't get to live in there. God looks at this tattered, broken building and says, I'm gonna make that my temple. It's gonna be my permanent address here on earth. And because of that, I have the conviction of the Holy Spirit that because the love of God is in me, it can start to work out of me and, and maybe I can begin to do these things. I was reading a commentary as I was getting ready for this. And it said a great way to uh, a, gr- a great way to read First Corinthians thirteen devotionally is to just put your name everywhere it says love and see how you're doing. Joby is patient and kind. No, Joby does not envy or boast. Yeah, he does. Joby's not arrogant or rude. He is. It, it made me feel worse. I felt like I heard the Jeopardy buzzer after every one. I mean, every time. But I've got good news. You see, in 1 John 4, 8, we just found out that God is love. So what we can do is we can, I can't put my name there because I am not those things in and of myself. But because God is love, wherever love is, you can put God there. And guess what? God is patient and kind. And God does not envy or boast. And God is not arrogant or rude. And God does not insist on his own way. In fact, he stepped out of the glory of heaven and he came to earth to die for sins that were not his fault. And he is not irritable and he is not resentful. 
and he does not rejoice at wrongdoing, or how about this, that, that God keeps no record of wrong, that he takes your record of wrong if you know Jesus and he nails it to the cross and he rejoices in the truth and Jesus said he is the truth. Did you know 1 Corinthians 13 is not just a, a test for how we're doing, man. It is the example of how God has loved every single one of us. Have you ever experienced a love like that? Did you know you can? That you could experience a love like that and when that love begins to indwell and invade you, then we can actually love like the men that we are called to love. Here's the point. That passivity is holding back your strength and your manhood for self-preservation. That looks too hard for my own comfort. I'm not gonna get involved. Aggression is expressing your strength and your manhood for self-gratification. I'll take what I want when I want. The problem is both of those are childish behavior. Quit being a child and we should be men. Love, like Jesus taught us, is leveraging your strength for others at great expense to yourself like Christ did on the cross. Have you ever experienced a love like that? Because God loves you that way. And this very day, this very day, you could receive the love of God in your life, not by anything that you have done, but by what Christ did on the cross, that God demonstrated his love for you in this, that while we were yet still sinners, that Christ said, I'll go first. I'll love you first. And I'll be kind and I'll be patient and I will keep no record of your wrong. I will bear all things. I will endure all things. I will hope all things. I will never, ever, ever quit on you because he is love. You wanna receive that kind of love? You can do it in this very moment. Would you please close your eyes, bow your head. If you were a Christian, if you've been a Christian for a while, would you just remind yourself that you are beloved, that, that God loves you? Would you just remind yourself of that again? That, that his love is irrevocable. He cannot, he will not take it back because he is love. And if, you're, if you've never received the love of God, and maybe today for the very first time, not because I described it super well, but something is going on in your heart where you know that you are a sinner in need of a savior. And you believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross and he says, it is finished, that he is the propitiation for your sin, that that counted for you. And in this very moment, you can confess Jesus as your Lord. You just say it in your own words right now. And if that's you, if you've confessed if you've confessed to God that you want him to be the boss of you and not you to be the boss of you anymore, if you have received the love of God for the very first time through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, would you just raise your hand and say, Father, here I am. I believe you are who you say you are, and I believe in Christ died on the cross. It counted for me. Our good and gracious heavenly Father, God, we love you because you first loved us. God, we thank you that you are first. And God, I thank you that Jesus came not to just be an example or a model for us to mimic, but he came to pay that debt, to give us the credit for his righteous life. And that when we surrender to you, the love of God dwells inside of us. And love never fails, God, because you never fail. God, I pray that you would remove all the clutter in our life that is keeping the fruit of the spirit from bearing much fruit. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Church, the way we are gonna end this service <clears throat> is the way the first church ended most of their services. We're gonna celebrate Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper. And I was kind of brought up that this was just a symbol. It's just something you did at church and it was just a symbol that pointed to something. 
that's sort of true, but it's more than that. It's not just a little bit of bread and a little bit of grape juice and we do it because Jesus told his people to do it. And so if you'll grab, if you're sitting on the end, if you'll grab the baskets under you and begin to pass them, hopefully you didn't use that as trash because it's the body and blood of Jesus, okay? So begin to pass that. So it's not just a symbol, it's not just routine, it's not just this thing you do. I think a part of the reason that the Lord instituted Holy Communion as a sacrament is because for like 1600 years, people did not have good access to the Bible. And so every time they would celebrate the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, they were participating in the gospel, the heralding of the gospel. Now there's this other extreme way over here that thinks if you eat this and drink this, you've earned some more grace. That it is a, a, a dispensation of grace to you as you take this. The problem with that is the Bible is very clear that Jesus has died once for all of our sins. So his flesh and blood were nailed to the cross one time, not over and over and over every time at a church service. And if you do something to earn grace, it no longer becomes grace. You see, grace is the unmerited favor of God. And we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, even works like this. We're not saved by these works. And so where we land is we're kind of in the middle. This is a really, really big deal. This is a participation in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You see, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, after showing the disciples the full extent of his love by dressing himself as a servant and loving them and not being selfish, but being selfless, not making it about him, but making it about them, they, they serve the meal. And this is the traditional Passover meal that every one of these Orthodox Jewish men had done every year of their life. And Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it. And he's supposed to say some stuff about Moses and the angel of death and the shed blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the house and the Exodus. And instead of saying those things, he says, this is my body broken for you. And the disciples had no idea what he's he talking about. And what he was saying is that thing that happened back in the book of Exodus was really just a foreshadowing of what I am going to do for you once and for all. That my body will be broken on your behalf. And the next day when he, when he was crucified on the cross, then it began to make sense to the disciples. And what he is saying is that when I go to the cross, I am the propitiation for your sin. That the wrath of God that we all deserve because of our sin is gonna be poured out on the sinless one and he will be broken to pay our debt. And so he says, this is my body. As often as you eat of it, you do so in remembrance of me. Go ahead. And then he holds up the cup and he says, this is my blood. This is the cup of the new covenant. Covenant and testament are the same word. So there was an old covenant or an old testament and that was rooted in the 10 commandments or the law, thou shalt not. And he said, it's not just thou shalt not, it's really that you could not. And because you could not, I am going to do for you what you could not do on your own, that you could not be holy even though I am holy. So I'm gonna live a holy, perfect life and my blood is gonna cover over and take away the sins of the entire world for anybody that would believe in me. And that is the new covenant. It is not a contract. It's not, if you do your part, then I do my part. It is a covenant. I'll go first and I will demonstrate my love for you in this, that before you ever do anything right, I will pour my blood out for you. This is a covenant of grace, of God's unmerited favor. 
And he says, and as often as you drink of this, you do so in remembrance of me. Now church, I wanna invite you to bow your head and close your eyes and pray at your own pace and just remind yourself of the gospel. Thank him, thank him for the forgiveness of your sin and rejoice, rejoice in your salvation. Our good and gracious heavenly Father, God, we love you because you love us first. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you that you do love us, that you do love us. And because you love us, we can love one another. And so God, I, I pray by the power of the body and the blood of Jesus, by the indwelling of the spirit, by the word of God and the love of a heavenly father, Lord, that we would live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God, we would be loved. And because we are beloved, that we would go out and love one another. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you would please stand. We're gonna end the way the first century church end. The Bible says that after they would celebrate the Lord's table, that they would join their voices together. They would sing hymns and spiritual songs and praise songs. And so we're gonna do that. We're gonna join our voices together and sing to the one that loves us. Also, I know a whole bunch of us, men, need to repent and we need the, the power of the Holy Spirit to love the way God has called us to love. So we would invite you to come down to the altar and ask for that. And then also, we bring our tithes and our offerings, our first and our best financially because God first loved us by giving us his best in Jesus Christ. So let us respond.